The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 2 is our study, and our subject is, The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches. We are in a series of sermons about the Lord's letters to the seven churches of Asia, and today is the study of the second church. This is the church of Smyrna. Uh, This is the second church on the divine postal route. The first was in the city of Ephesus, and our study concerns the way uh, that These churches reflect the good and bad attitudes of churches in all ages. One or more of these churches in Revelation are like us and like other Baptist churches. Maybe none of them are exact match to us, but we do find something in these letters that either commends or convicts the Berean Baptist Church. And maybe these letters do both at the same time. God wrote a timeless book. It's an elastic document. It never goes out of date. It is as current as the time it was written. Only God knows the things of the past, the present, and the future, and he sees all of that at one glance. And this is what God told John to do, to write about the past, present, and future. In the first chapter, he says in verse number 19, write the things which thou hast seen, that's in the past, and the things which are, that is the present, and the things which shall be hereafter, that is the future, The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. And so these two chapters, two and three, concern churches in the first century that are emblematic of churches in all ages. Now, if you'll look at our text in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, this is... The message to Smyrna, it's a very short letter. Not much is written here. This is a church that needs no lashes from a whip. There are no glaring problems the Lord saw to correct, but rather he commends this church and promises that he will be with them in their trials. Revelation 2, verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and that ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh will not be hurt of the second death. The church at Smyrna, we've called the church that is under fire. It's a church that's fighting a a horrific battle with Satan. It's fighting against principalities, against wickedness in high places. That's described in Ephesians chapter 6. This is a church that's fighting a world that hates Christ. And so they're struggling with intense persecution from all sides. It comes from pagan, idolatrous Gentiles. It comes from vengeful, monotheistic Jews. 
But they're not alone in the fight. And if they were alone, they wouldn't have made it this far. They wouldn't have survived anything, not for very long, because there is no one who is able to fight a battle with Satan alone. But here is a church that's still holding out faithful to the Lord, and the Lord used this letter to tell them that He stood with them, that He recognized their faith, He recognized their steadfastness. And in the beginning of this letter, He wrote a description of Himself that assured struggling Christians that there's no need to fear what anyone in the world can do to us. The eternal soul is safe in Jesus Christ, although the temporary body is threatened. Now, in the last message, we didn't get any further than part of the salutation. There's just too much. The letter is too grand. And so we didn't get past the, the, the marvelous introduction of the one who wrote this letter that he is the hope of salvation, he is the hope of eternal life, he is the help that we need when we're in the deep, deepest, darkest trials of our life, when enemies that against us are too powerful. And so that's the point that we started with last week. It was the power of Christ. And this is what we need to recognize, that power of Christ that's able to help us. The letter is addressed to the angel of the church, that is the angelos, that is the pastor of the church and he is the one that God has appointed to preach the Word of God, to lead the people with the whole counsel of God's Word. Typical of the beginning of each of these letters, the author describes himself, and each letter opens with a declaration of Christ's unique magnificence. There's something different in every letter as a characteristic of Christ. In the first letter, he speaks that he is the owner of the church. He's the one who holds pastors in his hands. He's the one that, that directs with exceptional care of the Holy Spirit. And in this letter, we see a grand declaration of his deity. He is self-identified as the God of the Old Testament. He is the author and the finisher of all things. He's creator of heaven and earth. He originates because he existed before all things. He is first and last, and that is an unmistakable reference to Isaiah 44, verse 6. He is Jehovah, the Lord God, the King of Israel, who said this through the prophet, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. And that is a perfect opening line for the Smyrna church, because this city was the proudest of all in their support of Rome and the emperor. They were the first to deify Rome, the first to believe that Rome as a city is a god, the first to build a temple to Tiberius, and first in dedication to him as a god. So the Lord begins by refuting those claims that he is first and last, he is God, he is only God, and this only God is the one who is the Almighty on their side. So what should they do hearing that wonderful news from the Lord God? Well, they're to do as the psalmist said, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Why? Because he's God over Israel. And because he's God over Rome. He is God over emperors. He's God over all kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I can break them with a rod of iron. They'll all be shattered as a potter destroys and discards a worthless clay pot. And so his point is, what reason is there to fear? 
when the God who can do this is on your side. Now, the one who writes this is the God of the Old Testament. And if he is the God of the Old Testament, then he must possess all the attributes of God. And indeed, the New Testament says that Jesus Christ does have all attributes of God. Colossians says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. Now, the attributes of God, that's a big subject. And you might want to get a book such as the one written by Arthur Pink on the attributes of God and others. Stephen Charnock wrote a tremendous book. He was a Puritan on the existence and attributes of God. And those are wonderful books. And we don't have time to talk about all the attributes of God, but we can look at two that are found in this opening of this letter. First, the letter shows us that he is God omnipotent. Not only does he have power, but he has all power. He has power that's unlike anyone. He has power of life and death. He says he was dead and he is alive. Now, why does he tell them that? Because he wants them to know they can identify with the resurrected one. And folks, that is the most essential claim of Christianity. Paul said that if Christ did not arise, then we have no reliable faith. And his argument for persecuted Corinthians when he said those words is that we are associated with the one who was resurrected, who arose from the grave under his own power. And the resurrection to life is in his hands. And so their hope to live is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ described in 1 Corinthians as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the encouragement of this letter. If he was dead and he arose and he controls life, then what need is there to fear death? He proved that death couldn't hold him. O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? He is the firstborn from the dead, the first to return from the dead under his own power. Now, I'd like you to think about that for a minute. How does a lifeless body come back to life? Death does not beget life. A dead body doesn't think. It doesn't have any, any willpower. You stand before a dead body and you hope for it. But once life is gone, there's nothing in that body that could ever cause it to stir. Nothing can shake off death and that body stand again. I've been to many funerals. I have preached many funerals where loved ones looked into a casket and they wanted nothing better, nothing more than to that, for that dead body to open the eyes and for that person to sit up in a casket and just walk on out of it. Now, we think that we'd like to see that. In reality, it scares scare us to death because that's never happened. We don't expect it to happen. Never did anybody get up and leave the grave. God is the only one who can cause that to happen. And so if Jesus was raised from the dead under his own power, what does that make him? It makes him God. He must be God because only God can do this. So he says in the letter, I was dead and am alive. And there is nothing that accounts for that but God's omnipotence. Now, be sure you understand the terms omnipotence. Omni means all, potent means power. He is all powerful. Now, the English language does not reflect the significance of this, of this statement. The verb tenses in the Greek are extremely important. The literal translation of the first part of this is became. He became death or became dead. Now, 
that would mean that death was just a passing phase, that he became dead. It's just another episode of his life. And he went through many experiences in his life, and this is just another experience of life that he went through. He went through a dead phase. He, he passed right through a dead phase, and then he went into another phase, and it's as if death was just an experience of life. Live, become dead, and then live again. You ever hear anybody talk about death that way? Who treats death that way? Nobody but the one who has the power over death. To him, death is an experience. Oh, it was a horrible experience. There was pain and suffering that was involved in it. But it was done, and then it was over, and now he's no longer dead. And as Jesus looked at that, that is an experience of life. It's a three-day experience. Now he's alive. He came to life again. And what is the importance of that to the church at Smyrna? Well, if they die under intense persecution, they don't need to fear death because Christ has been there before them. He went through it too. And then what happened to him? He arose from the dead. For those of you who wonder, why does God allow persecution? Well, some of it is for this reason, to drive the sufferer to this hope, to his hope. The world is temporary, not us. So you don't put your hope in the world because everything in the world will be gone. You will survive. The world's going to go up in fire and smoke, but you're always going to exist. And so you die, but your death is only a phase of your life. Do you, do you understand if you can really get that deep down within you, you would never fear death coming? It's just a phase of life. It's something people go through, and everybody does. And those who are the redeemed of Jesus Christ hit that phase of life. They die, but then they come out. They rise. Immediately, the person who dies in Jesus Christ goes straight into heaven. He's been through a phase, and now he's back into another phase of life. And not only that, but God promises later he will raise the body from the dead. So here is a message that's suited for Smyrna. They are specially chosen words that fit a church in time of terrible persecution. They can stand for God because they know that death is not to be feared. This is the encouragement they need to keep going. Now, if Christians like those in other parts of the world suffer by having their heads cut off, they don't gain anything by renouncing Christ. They gain nothing. They gain everything by enduring. They gain everything by perseverance, knowing that although death takes them now, it's only a phase that they pass through. They will live again. That's a person who really has this deep down in their heart. Do you, do you understand how, how do these people... We don't experience this, but how do these people in other parts of the world, why don't they renounce Christ when they're threatened with death? Because this hope that I'm telling you about is real to them. Death is only a phase. Life is next. Live, die, life. So dead is dead. An unbeliever doesn't have any hope, or at least for the unbeliever, dead is dead. Life is gone, forever gone. Whether they've lived in luxury all of their life and they suffer nothing in their death, or whether they live in poverty their entire lives and they die with their body crushed and racked with painful disease, when they're dead, they're dead. But their death doesn't mean no consciousness. No, they die 
to wake up in what the Bible calls an eternal death. It's not life, it's death. It's a night of horrible suffering that never ends. So the, the, the question seems to be easy, isn't it? Which is better, suffer temporarily as a Christian or suffer eternally as an unbeliever? That doesn't seem too hard to answer. So why don't Christians give up and give in? There isn't any advantage. They don't gain anything. With faith in Christ, we live again. Understand that the risks of the Christian life are crazy, and they're worth nothing. And, and it'd be foolishness if there is no resurrection. The Apostle Paul said the very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, the next wonderful attribute of God that we see in this first part of the letter is that he is God omniscient. Remember, we are talking about Jesus Christ. He is God omniscient. Now, the, the, the point about the first and the last, that's mag magnificent. The beginning of verse number 9 is, I know. And how important are those words? I know. I am aware. I've not forgotten you. Have you ever had times in your life where you felt abandoned by God? There, it, it's just hard your sorrow, your grief, or whatever it may be that you're going through, pain and suffering, I've been abandoned by God. Don't you think that there were days in Smyrna where Christians wondered, where is God? What's going on? Where, where is God? Does he know what I'm going through? Oh, yes, he knows. Nothing escapes his attention. And at the right time, when we are in despair, when his people think he is not there, that's the time that he shows up. God knows. And so God brings peace to our heart. Have you, have you discovered that as we read these letters, that these are letters written to you? These are letters written to give you hope? This is a confirming letter from God? This is for you. I'm not just preaching to a crowd who wants to hear about what happened to somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. This is for you. And all the Holy Scriptures in the Bible, they're written for you. And God tells you, He knows. He knows what you're all about. The psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, the congregation in Smyrna stood fast without knowing as much as you and I know. There's nobody who printed Bibles, thousands of Bibles, and distributed them. They couldn't check out Amazon to get Bibles of every color and size that they wanted. A church like Smyrna might have only one complete copy of the Scriptures if they had that. Now, if you could see the scroll of Isaiah, it's rolled out at the Dead Sea Scrolls in Tel Aviv in Israel, you would just marvel at that massive scroll. To see that, how long it is, and scribbling to us that's written on that scroll. And the first two or three thoughts that you would have about that, it would be how big it is. How are you going to carry that thing around? If you have a copy of the Bible with all these scrolls, how are you going to get it around? Well, you need a pickup truck to carry this thing. So nobody carries around a personal Bible with them. And then you would think, how am I going to find what I want in it? How am I going to find the scripture that I'm looking for? There are no 
chapters and there are no verses. It just runs line, 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 line with no breaks. And how in the world are you going to find what you need? So the Smyrna Christians, they don't have a personal copy of the Bible to look up their life verse. There's no personal copy for comfort verses. There isn't one for faith verses and perseverance verses. But these are people who do have this. They have a personal letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, hand-delivered to them to let them know He knows what they face. He cares about the faithful. He promised He would never leave us or forsake us. He said, every hair of your hair, of your head is numbered. You can't lose one except He knows. Well, if He knows such minute details as those... How is God going to overlook one of his faithful children? He is the omniscient God. Again, we see omni, that's all. Then S-C-I-E-N-T, omniscient, that comes from the same word, or that is the same word from which we get science. Science is knowledge. He has all knowledge. He'll never forget you. Now, since he knows everything, he also does not forget what others do to you. Now, strangely enough, in the comfort of these Christians is knowing God knows about them, God doesn't forget about them, and God is going to avenge them. We talked a little bit about that last week. Most people don't see Christianity from that side, but there is certainly an element of, of vengefulness here, revenge for what's happened to them, and God promises that will, will be taken care of. But what the Word of God never does, it never gives us an avenue for personal revenge. So no matter what anybody does to you, you're not to go after them. You leave that to God. And the reason you leave it to God is because you can never do perfect judgment and justice as God does. God wants justice in His hands because He knows how to handle things and you don't. The right of revenge is not ours, it's God's, and He will get it for His people. Well, we think about persecution and we wonder, are we blessed to live in this country where there is no persecution or very little persecution? And I I would say yes and no. In 1 Timothy, it says that we ought to pray to live peaceably, and yet God knows when not to answer that prayer. Sometimes the people of God need their faith increased, and sometimes God uses radical measures to do it. And so if we don't serve God in times where there is no persecution, God will send it and God will allow it because that's the way that he builds our faith. Perhaps if we had more persecution, we wouldn't have so many Christians that need a pastor's constant attention because they're always whining and wondering. Persecution drives unbelievers out, but it draws believers out closer together. The sheep huddle when there's a threat. So maybe your faith needs to be tested now and then. Our faith as a church needs to be tested now and then to find out who are the true believers in this church. Who will stand for Christ? Who will go through the hard times? Are we true believers or are we false pretenders? So these are, these are two important attributes of God that sustain us. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. Knowledge of God's power and wisdom increases our faith and causes us to stand. Now we go on to the second part, which is the persecution of the church. Now let me get a little bit more specific with you now. 
Smyrna is a city in love with idols. They are in love with the emperor. They are in love with Rome. They are in love with self. This is a city that basked in its natural beauty. That's the source of their civic pride. And Christians endangered the tranquility in Smyrna because converts to Christ reject that false serenity. Rome is not their glory. Idols are not their God. The Caesar, Caesar is not their Lord. So Christians are persecuted. But the chief persecutors, and, and this, this, this defines Smyrna, and, and we'll see this when we get to another church, Pergamos, that comes later. This, this is the part that defines Smyrna, that the persecutors there are not the ones that we expect. Now, the pagans of Rome, they certainly did their part, but they weren't the first instigators of terror against Christians. It's not pagans that were first in persecution. Now, from the days of the first church in Jerusalem and to the time of this letter, the first persecutors were the Jews. The Jews were always constantly throwing up roadblocks and protests to the cause of Christ. Now, I want to caution you now that what I'm about to say next is in no way bigotry against Jews in our time. That's not the purpose here. What I'm looking at is history. And we're looking at what happened in the first century. And there's a history to that. There's a truth about that that I want to tell you. In Paul's missionary journeys, it was the Jews that gave him the most trouble. And when they stopped him in one city, they weren't content to let him go to another and just leave him alone. But what they would do is they would follow him to the next town and they would stir up trouble against him. Now, we'll spend the rest of our time just talking about this, the testing of tribulation. There is a time of tribulation that came against this church, instigated primarily by the Jews that are in that city. Now, from the beginning, the Jews did their best to stop Christianity. They were widely dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, dating back to the captivities of the Old Testament times. And so Jews were found in nearly every city. And they always hated Christians. Now, at first, the church was only in Jerusalem. And Roman leaders were content to leave, leave Christians alone, believing that they're, they're just another sect of the Jews. They're a faction like many others. To them, the sects of the Jews are Pharisees and Sadducees, Herodians, the Zealots, the Essenes, and Christians, all the same thing, all the same religion, just a little different flavor. Well, the Christian-Jewish dispute then was of not much consequence to Rome. They didn't care to be involved in internal affairs of religious conflict. So it's not Rome that sent the menace by the name of Saul to persecute Christians. In Acts chapter 9, Saul didn't didn't receive a commission from Roman rulers to go persecute and haul in Christians and kill them. No, his commission came from the high priest of Israel. Later, after he was converted, it wasn't Felix, it wasn't Festus, it wasn't Agrippa, it wasn't Roman rulers that forced Paul into court. It was Jews. It was Jews who who tried to tear him limb from limb at the temple, and their actions caused Rome to intervene. And why was Paul attacked at the temple? Because he dared to say this, I have a commission from Jesus Christ to preach the gospel to Gentiles. So wherever Paul traveled, the Jews in the synagogues of Gentile cities went after him and they stirred up trouble. A typical scene would be what we see 
uh, that happened in Antioch in Acts 13.50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. Same thing happened in the next city, Iconium. Then it's the next town of Lystra where they stoned Paul and left him for dead. You know who did that? It was the Jews who came from Antioch that had followed him all the way to Lystra and stoned him. So they weren't content to, to stop him from preaching in their city. They wanted to get rid of him from the rest of the Roman Empire. And then their Jews at Thessalonica, they became so angry at his preaching that they joined a league of pagans, pagans that they would never associate with except for this. They have a common cause. They hate Christ. They hate Christianity. And they hate Paul. In Jerusalem, it was Jews that criticized Jesus and the apostles for sitting with publicans and sinners. But in Thessalonica, they gladly united with the worst of pagans in that common cause. In Thessalonica, they feared Paul and Barnabas because they said they have turned the world upside down with the gospel of Christ. And surely they had because before Paul had finished preaching, the gospel had grown like wildfire and the empire changed forever. Now the Jews hated it. In AD 70, the Romans drove them out of Jerusalem. There were over one million Jews that died in the burning, the sacking of the city, and the destruction of the temple. And the Romans killed them. And the truth of the matter is that that devastation was their own fault. Jesus told them that their unbelief would lead to the destruction of those places in which they misplaced their trust. So the Jews were scattered. Now they're all over the the empire, and they're not content to let Christianity survive. They hated that what Jesus said came true. And so from there, what the Jews tried to do was to vigorously separate themselves from Christians in their identity. They did not want Rome to think, these Christians are just another sect of the Jews. Now, Rome didn't very much like Jews, but the Jews successfully convinced, convinced the Romans that Christians are a much bigger threat to the empire than we ever hoped to be. That happened at Antioch. There's no doubt it happened at Smyrna. And in the ninth verse of our text, the Lord says, I know those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. What does he mean? They're Jews. They say they're Jews, but they're not. Well, this is another time where Jesus made a point, and he cut very deeply with the truth. Word of God says he knows how to divide the joints and the marrow with his words. This comment is a slam against the Jews. Now, he's not politely, politely respectful of them. He's against anyone who teaches doctrines that send people to hell. So Jesus knew how to gouge them. And his use of the word synagogue is not an incidental reference. He, he purposely use this word. Now, do you understand what the meaning of synagogue is? The word means gathering. The Jews had no temple, but to remain cohesive, they must gather. They didn't build temples because there's only one temple of the holy God. That's supposed to be at Jerusalem. So they don't build temples, but they still need to gather, and the synagogues are the places of their gathering. So gathered as a group, they called themselves God's people. The synagogue is the gathering of Jews, God's people. Jesus used synagogue 
purposely. He says, they are not a gathering of my people. They are a gathering of Satan's people. You know, there are few preachers today that are as brazen as Jesus in his characterizations of unbelievers. Jesus would look at many of our churches today and he'd say, they're not my gathering. They're not an assembly of my people. They are the assembly of Satan. Nearly every week I get an email from the Ministerial Association of Pastors in our area. Got one this week. They want me to come to a gathering. To get together. To go to breakfast. To a luncheon. Let's have a meeting where we're going to invite the latest heretic that came down the pike to speak at our gathering. So the message there is cooperation and unification within the gathering. And so I look at the names of the churches and the pastors and who they represent, and I wonder, why should I meet with them? What's the advantage in being joined in a fellowship with those who preach a work salvation? Those who preach salvation can be lost. Those who preach sacraments are a means of grace. And those who preach and blaspheme the Holy Spirit by gibberish of speaking in tongues. Why do I need to gather with them? Why would I want to gather in a synagogue of Satan? Jesus isn't there. I don't need to be there. But I'm not supposed to talk like that, am I? No, I'm not supposed to talk like that. But I do because I believe doctrine matters. I believe that doctrinal distinctions are important. And so Berean Baptist Church does not seek to tear down doctrinal barriers that divide us. If it's truth, we seek to build the walls higher and put barbed wire on top of them. And that's what Jesus does in this text. He purposely attacked them at the level of false doctrine. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. So he hits them hard here. The worst that he can do is to call a pious Jew who in his pride thought himself to be one of God's chosen people to call that person a devil worshiper and that is precisely his objective in the text. Now here's another interesting little factoid for you. The Jews in city like Smyrna, uh, cities like Smyrna attracted Gentile converts. Some did not like, some of the Romans didn't like polytheism. Some of them don't like the immorality of the empire. So they like the reserved Jewish idea of monotheism, perhaps because it's much easier to remember the name of one god than it is a hundred gods. And so some of them became proselytes to Judaism. And it's likely these Gentile proselytes are also referenced by Jesus here. They say they are Jews, but they are not. Jesus didn't even include all ethnic Jews as his people. The real Jews are the worshipers of Jehovah God. And the Jews stopped worshiping Jehovah God when they rejected Christ. The real Jews are the ones who understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and he is God's promised Messiah. So Christians at Smyrna are tested in tribulation from all quarters. Jews, Gentile proselytes to Judaism, pagan Romans, they all test them. Monotheistic Jews stir up polytheistic pagans against Christians. And they said, Christians are the enemy of us all. And in a sense, that's true. Christ is a common enemy to all unbelievers. 
Now, the oddest peculiar thing about the Jews' claim was this, that if they had listened and learned from Christianity, and if pagans listened to Christians, and they would have learned that Christians are never a threat to good government. Christians are taught to obey the government, which the Jews were never happy to do unless they were the ones that were in control of government. So the Jews wanted to throw off Rome. And wasn't it Jesus who said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Paul never abolished that command. When he began to teach, he couldn't. That's Jesus' words. So he taught Christians in Rome, of all places, obey civil authorities. Now, if the Jews had sufficient numbers and the wherewithal, they would have warred with Rome in a heartbeat and thrown off Rome. Christians never would. This is what Christians say to government. Leave us alone. Let us live, live peaceably. We'll give you no trouble. We'll make sure that we pay our taxes because we believe that government is ordained by God. But I want you to hear some of the charges that were made against Christians. William Barclay explains how the Jews swayed opinions against Christians and tried to get Rome to turn against them. Now first, they said, Christians are cannibals. What? Yes, Christians are cannibals. Why? Because Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How can you prove that early Christians were not Catholics? Because they never heard of such a thing that anyone would believe that Christ was speaking any other way than spiritually in that text. It was the Jews, and it's Rome, who took the saying literally. And it's not until the 13th century that anybody who claimed to be a Christian believed in such nonsense as transubstantiation. No Christian ever thought that Jesus meant anyone can change bread and wine into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if Roman Catholics are right, the charge sticks because, well, yes, there's some form of cannibalism there if the body and blood of Jesus are literally present in the Eucharist. I'm not supposed to say that either, was I? Secondly, Christians practiced fellowship that were called love feasts. The Jews said, no, they are lust feast. And thereby they accused them of orgies. Thirdly, Christians are, are uh, charged with disloyalty because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. That's true. That's true, they wouldn't. But as we've already seen, Christians are not disloyal to government. In their assemblies, they're told to pray for their leaders. You can see that in 1 Timothy 1, verses two through, 1 through 2. Fourthly, Rome accused them of atheism. Why? Their churches have no images. So how can they worship God? There are no idols. How can they worship God? More proof that early Christians are not Catholics. Rome would never have made this charge if they walked into a Roman Catholic church where idols abound everywhere. They have no grounds to complain that there's not enough idols to please them. Go to St. Peter's Basilica if you're ever on vacation and see what I mean. Now, in summary of this point, and, and I conclude, I'd like to relate to you the most famous incident of persecution in Smyrna. This concerns a disciple of the Apostle John named Polycarp, and it's appropriate that he had an association with John who recorded these words of Jesus in the letter to Smyrna. And the incident with Polycarp occurred about 50 years after this letter. 
Now remember, Polycarp knew John. He was a disciple of John. So Polycarp was a strong disciple. He was a faithful pastor of the church in Smyrna. And he was well-liked by the pagans. And it's not because he compromised with him, but because he was an honorable man. And government officials got along with him because it's obvious he had no designs on the subversion of Rome. But somebody stirred up trouble against him. And they chose a time to bring their charges when Smyrna was buzzing with excitement and the population of Smyrna had swelled because of public games. Now, you and I know them something like the Olympics. The public games were being held in Smyrna, and uh, those games were attended, somewhat like our Super Bowl today is attended. And with this huge crowd, somebody planted a seed against Polycarp that took a brief time to grow into a frenzy against him. And in this crowd of idol worshipers, there was a charge of atheism made against Polycarp, and they said, we must kill all atheists. Well, being a Christian, Polycarp was numbered with the atheists. He didn't worship idols. So they seized him, and they demanded that he would say, Caesar is Lord. And if he would repeat that phrase, they let him go. And so they brought him to the arena. They gave him a choice. Renounce Christ. Make a sacrifice to Caesar. And everything we find. Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And they replied to that, Polycarp, if you don't do this, we're going to burn you alive. He replied, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you know not the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come and do what you will. So they rushed out to get the wood to build the fire. Now I want you to pay close attention here because this is the clincher to the term that Jesus used when he said, synagogue of Satan. The day that this happened was Saturday. It's the Jewish Sabbath. And who is out front leading the effort to gather the wood? It's the Jews. They hated Christians and Polycarp so much that they joined with pagans to break their own Sabbath to burn an innocent man at the stake. These are the same people that we read in the New Testament with the mindset that said, Jesus and the apostles, you cannot pick heads of grain, grains of wheat because you're hungry on the Sabbath day. And here they are, and they have gone to gather wood to murder a man. Does anybody see hypocrisy here? Aren't these the same ones you remember in Numbers that killed a man for gathering sticks on the Sabbath? So they started the fire, Polycarp was burning, and out of the fires came this prayer. O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, God of angels and powers and of all creation, and of the whole family of the righteous who live before thee, I bless thee that thou hast granted unto me this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ for the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou the God without falsehood and of truth hast prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason I also praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee, 
through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. How is it possible for a Christian to do that? And this is a scene repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times with Christian martyrs. Tribulation, trial of tribulation. And we've got to sit here today and wonder, how is the church still here? And the answer to this is that Christians, true believers in Jesus Christ, never count this life as our great gain. We trust Christ to take away our sins, to justify us from our guilt, to make us perfect with God, and then to take us home to heaven to live in glory forever. So what we won't do, we're not going to trade eternity for three score and ten. Seventy years of this life, we're not going to trade eternity for that. Because we look at, we look at death as only a passing phase. We go through it, and then we're done with it. It's a phase of life, life, death, life. And we know that we're going to live forever. Now, some Christians in other parts of the world see the threat every day. Why don't they retreat? Why don't they give in? They're asked to do the same thing as Polycarp was told to do, renounce Christ. But what do they do? They die. And they die because Jesus is Lord. He is first and last. He was dead. He became dead. And he came back to life. And do you know that Christ is never going to ask you to do what he was unwilling to do? He saw ahead. He knows the future, isn't that right? He knows the future. He is omniscient. He saw ahead. And you know what he saw? It's only three days. Death is only three days. And then it's over. Back to life. To live forever. And Jesus Christ lives forever. Do you know the same is true for you? Live forever because of the living Christ. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for eternal life in Jesus Christ. How important to us is the resurrection. If we would just get that settled down into our hearts and truly believe that, there's nothing that we would fear in this life. Not any hardship that we experience. And so many times we're afraid of things like the economy. Are we going to have enough money? Can we do this? Can we do that? How are we going to survive? It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. This is just a passing phase that we go through. This life is temporary. Death is temporary. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is eternity. Lord, help us to get that into our heart and to proclaim that message around the world to people that we see, that we meet. May it be the message of our church. Jesus Christ lives, and because he lives, we too shall live. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web 
at www.bebaptist.org.